Welcome back, everyone. We have one more panel uh, before we finish for the day. Actually, more of a discussion, uh, really, or a conversation, if you will. Uh, if anybody has been digging into the California's housing crisis, they probably have come across Connor Doherty's book, Golden Gates. It's one of the best uh, descriptions of the YIMBY movement and uh, housing uh, politics in the state uh, to come along. Uh, if you've read it, you know that a good portion of it has to do with the relationship uh, between our next two guests, uh, Sonia Trous, who's one of the founders of the EMB movement. Uh, she goes back actually a ways to having founded the San Francisco Bay Renters Association and have create California EMB. She's been one of the founders of the EMB movement all, and leaders of it all along. She now heads EMB Law the legal arm of the movement uh, who's out there suing uh, communities to enforce uh, fair housing laws. And Stephen Falk, who was at the time uh, city manager of Lafayette, California. And why he's not any longer the city manager of Lafayette, California is part of the story. Uh, but he is currently the interim city manager in Oakland, which is a city that has a reputation for a much uh, more willing, much more of a willingness to build housing so uh, uh, than others in the state. So I'm going to just turn it over to them and let them talk to among each other and tell their stories. So I'm going to go with you, Sonia. Why don't you start things off and uh, the two of you can talk. Um, sure. Okay. That's a pretty broad prompt. Um, yeah. So I started organizing pro-housing renters uh, in 2014. Uh, because, you know, we could see that there was a housing shortage, rents were going up quite a lot. I was living in West Oakland and people who were sort of overflowing from San Francisco were coming to West Oakland and competing, you know, I felt with myself um, and with the current residents for housing. And um, I can't, you know, I, I was making two, I was taking home $2,000 a month. I was working as a high school math teacher. And I was like, I can't compete with all these high income people, you know, who are, um, even though they're high income, still being displaced from San Francisco because it's so expensive. And so I think that one of the, uh, I didn't expect my organizing project to really go anywhere, but it very much did because it turned out like that what I was doing was pretty unique. Um, and there were a lot of people who were really hungry for like, for a, for a group whose message was, you know, let's build housing. Um, and uh, I think one of the other things about what I was doing that was unique was that we were getting involved across municipal boundaries. A lot of people think that they should only get involved in their own neighborhood or in their own city, you know, and I had people asking me all the time, why do you care about what's happening in San Francisco if you live in Oakland? But, you know, obviously the decisions they're making affect all of the the re, you know the cities around them in the region, um, and so that's how we got involved with Lafayette. Uh, I saw in the paper that there was this big project. Um, a developer was trying to build 315 apartments on a hillside, so they weren't displacing anything, you know, at all. It's just a grassy hillside, uh, and the community was in an uproar. Um, so we organized people to go speak in favor of the project and also threatened to uh, sue the city if they didn't approve it. And then quite a lot of things happened and recently they did approve it. So 
So I don't know, maybe uh, Stephen should tell his side of the story. <laughs> Hi, uh, everybody. Glad to be here. Uh, I, I need to just correct uh, uh, my introduction. I was the interim city administrator of Oakland, but I finished that assignment when we uh, when I helped Libby Schaap uh, hire a permanent city administrator. So I'm no longer doing that. But before I start, let me just say that while Sonia and I both worked on and kind of became notable for the same project in Lafayette, we did it through uh, totally different uh, experiences and totally different frames. And, uh, and so I think what you're going to hear today is, uh, from the two of us are uh, related to these two different frames. Sonia was an outsider and I was an insider. And Sonia used outsider tactics and I used insider tactics. And I don't say this in any way to diminish her role. In fact, I, I say it to honor the role. Um, and Connor Doherty wrote about this in his book that somebody eventually had to show up in communities and represent the people that didn't live there yet. And Sonia did that. And so I have nothing but admiration for her and for Laura and for Brian and for Victoria and for Scott Wiener and for all that uh, this uh, courageous group of people has accomplished over the last four or five years uh, agitating for housing uh, from the outside. Uh, Sonia's focus has been on housing and, and I'm concerned about that too, but my story was also propelled at least as much by environmental concerns, particularly those around climate change. Um, so, so I'd just like to take a minute to talk about my role as an insider and how I got there. I'm somebody who grew up in the 1960s during the Kennedy years, during the Great Society, uh, when kind of all things uh, seemed possible, including uh, going to the moon. And I was imprinted by that. And when President Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, you know, I sort of drank that Kool-Aid and uh, believed as a young person that government was a force for good. Uh, I believed that paramedics uh, saved lives and that food inspectors kept maggots out of our meat and that the Federal Highway Administration allowed every business in America to be successful and that Social Security kept millions and millions of people out of poverty and uh, kept seniors from having to eat cat food for dinner. And I believed that it was good that somewhere along the way, some bureaucrat green-lighted the Golden Gate Bridge Project and the Manhattan subways and the Hoover Dam and the Denver Airport. And, and I'm glad that they charge taxes to pay for those things. I subscribe to Oliver Wendell Holmes' the proviso that uh, taxes are what we pay for a civilized society. Like I said, I believed early on that government was a force for good. And so I chose to do this work. And I went to the Kennedy School of Government. And then I spent the next 30 years working for five different cities as an insider, trying in every case to make each one of them a little bit better. Um, and I used insider tactics. And the insider tactics are uh, coalition building and uh, political compromise and dealing with tight funding and 
trying not to let bureaucratic obstacles, you know, get you down um, and trying to figure out ways uh, to get things done in spite of them. Um, but the way this works and the deal you kind of make with yourself is that you have to believe in the mission of the organization, the people who uh, you're working for, the, the voters and, the, and their elected officials. And in my case, that was true for a very long time. I served as Lafayette city manager for 22 years. And during that time, we did a lot of stuff that I'm really proud of. We developed a smart growth plan to add housing around the BART station. And we used our redevelopment agency to deliver subsidized housing for people with low incomes. But then this famous project came along and uh, with Sonia and her crew, you know, banging on the city from the outside, uh, seeking to get this very large multifamily uh, project approved. Um, but the, the residents wouldn't have it. They demanded essentially no development at all. They wanted, you know, four, four units on 22 acres. And so as this insider, I did what I could. I did my best to work out kind of this insider's compromise deal that would have uh, made the developer some money, would have kept the council in office, would have placated the residents. I thought it was a good deal. It would have delivered a kind of a missing middle income uh, project that also had a huge amount of community benefits, a, a, a soccer field and a dog park. And uh, I thought it was a really good plan. And the developer was on board and the city council approved it uh, unanimously. But the voters wouldn't have it. And so they referendized the city council's action and my compromise plan that I spent like three years working on was defeated by 50%, 57% of the Lafayette voters. And in the meantime, the, there was a state law that would have allowed for more uh, or higher density develop around, uh, development around all of California's transit stations. And uh, now feeling the political heat, the city council um, felt obliged to oppose that. And they sent me to Sacramento to testify against it. And that kind of put me over the edge. And so I, um, I wrote this resignation letter and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but it said something like, you know, during the last 50 years, scientists have learned more about the earth's atmosphere and concluded that human activity and carbon emissions are responsible for climate change, that seas are rising and oceans are warming and the atmosphere is warming and the land is warming and ice is melting and heat emergencies and wildfires and hurricanes are increasing and rainfall patterns are changing and the ocean is becoming more acidic and that the risks from climate change cannot be overstated and that even small cities have a responsibility to do something about it, including Lafayette. And I felt like the best way for Lafayette to play its part, to do its part was to add uh, more dense housing around the transit station. And then I also noted that I was extremely disappointed by this vote uh, to, uh, to kill the housing project that I worked on and I submitted my resignation. And that's kind of the story that uh, Connor Doherty wrote about me in his, uh, in his book. And uh, since that time, I was glad to serve as the interim city manager of the city of Richmond, and then as the interim city administrator in the city of Oakland. And 
with that, I'll say, Sonia, back to you. Did I get the story right? Yeah, I think so. Actually, I, one thing I'd like for you to talk about, so I would love to believe, you know, that, so I, our involvement in Lafayette was, had good knockoff effects, you know, in general. Um, but I think that for this particular project, it actually wouldn't have mattered if we had showed up at all. Um, and I think that, but I mean, I'm interested to hear what you say, but I think that because of what wound up happening, you know, like to tell the truth to the, to the audience, we went to superior court and we lost our case. The superior court judge was a woman who had actually lived in Lafayette for a little while. She lived somewhere else. Um, she was a registered Republican and her feeling was if the developer's not unhappy with the situation, then what's the problem? You know, and we were arguing that the Housing Accountability Act, the law we were uh, suing under, wasn't there for developers. It was there for the like 700 plus renters who were not going to be able to live in this high opportunity area. Um, and so, you know, those are the those are the people the laws there to protect. And she was kind of like, and eh, I'll buy it. She's one of these people who doesn't who doesn't understand the difference between like being pro-free market and pro-business. She thinks being pro-business is being pro-free market, which is not the same thing. And I'm highlighting this because I think that the audience here at Cato should be able you know, to appreciate how frustrating that can be. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so we, we lost and uh, we could have appealed, but we made you know, a developer reach out, made a deal with us and we went on our way. And then the city council did approve this 44 single family homes, as you mentioned. And then the NIMBYs referended it. And so that's really the thing that wound up <laughs> bringing mm -hmm. this apartment project back because the deal you worked out was like this very unusual and interesting um, deal, which was that the uh, apartment project application was going to be like on hold, you know, sort of frozen um, while the 44 single family homes went through. But if the 44 single family homes project didn't, you know, didn't happen, then the developer could go back um, to the apartment project and like retain all of their rights uh, with respect to that. So I, I'm always, I'm so curious about that election. So first of all, like, I think it wasn't so much of a surprise that the NIMBYs referended it, although it was like very short-sighted. Um, what, what, like, who was doing the yes campaign on that? What was that campaign like? Not that many people voted, right? Like 5,000 people voted or something because it was in June. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a special election, so it had low turnout. Uh, and um, when, when I worked with Dennis O'Brien to craft this kind of compromise development, uh, we drew this, uh, we literally drew a Venn diagram on a big whiteboard and trying to figure out how can we sweeten this pot? What can we do in which of the circles to sweeten the pot so it's just irresistible to all of the uh, interested parties uh, with the exception of the outsiders. Thank um, you. <laughs> um, and, and Sonia and I have actually talked about this in a recent conversation where, uh, you know, when I was working on this deal, I thought it was an, just an in, it was an interior game. I thought I had three groups to placate: uh, the developer, the residents, and the city council, who was ultimately going to approve it. 
uh, I didn't bank on the idea that um, the YIMBY groups uh, were going to show up and kind of play this uh, outsider catalyst role, but that's, that's neither here nor there. So when we crafted this deal, we tried to put so many goodies in the, in the, in the bag that voters would, would vote for it, even if it was referendized. And so, you know, for the dog people in town, we added a big dog park. For the sports people in town with people with kids, we added a big soccer field. For people with little kids, uh, we added a tala. We just, we tried to make it a Christmas tree that had something for everybody in it. And so when this, this uh, anti-development group finally referendized it, I still thought, well, there's no way this thing's gonna lose. It's too good. It's like a, a friend of mine said, it was too much of a developer beatdown. I mean, there was too many goodies in this project. And um, I was, uh, I felt like I had a, a conflict of interest that I couldn't work on that campaign. Um, as a staff member, I just don't, I, I'm not clear what the law is, but I just uh, felt like uh, I could not work on the campaign because I didn't feel that was uh, the right thing to do. And so, you know, there were a few people who worked on that, yes, on L campaign, but not that many because I think everybody thought it would pass. And then, you know, it not only failed, but it fell overwhelmingly. 57 to 43 is a, it's a, that is for a local election, that's a huge loss. It's not, it wasn't close. Um, so that was really dispiriting. Uh, and for that to happen uh, contemporaneously to this, uh, this smart growth legislation around the transit stations, uh, that, that just kind of pushed me over the edge. That's interesting. That's what, cause I was, I was sort of watching it. So we were having our own in, in that year, the mayor's election was happening and I was actually also running. So there were a lot of elections happening in San Francisco at the time, but of course I was still keeping an eye on it. And, um, I was a little, it did seem like the yes. So, okay. Yes. You're totally right. 57, 43 is a, you know, kind of a, it's like a kind of a landslide, except really like not that many people voted. Right. So we're yeah. talking about like a few hundred people. Right. You know, like the amount of people that like, you know, so, right, more, more door knocking, you know what I mean? Could have, could have done more. Um, and it didn't seem like there was a super aggressive yes campaign. So I guess if you guys thought it would obviously win, then that's why. But I was kind of wondering about it, especially from O'Brien's point of view. I felt like if I had been O'Brien, I would have hired like 30 people to go door knocking because there's only 30,000 people in the whole town. And a lot of those people are children. So it's a very, very small number of voters were making a big decision. Uh, and I, I don't know, you know, Michael, you should jump in because there, there are very specific things about this that I think are interesting, but I don't know if the, um, <laughs> the viewers do. Because another funny thing that wound up happening, you know, if you care about small town politics and think it's, it's interesting, is that the, so in order to pay for the dog park, you guys basically used up like all the park's budget. And there were, there were people who were partisans for a downtown park. And then those people actually got pissed. Was that a surprise? Did you anticipate, or did they wind up mattering when it came to the election? I don't, I, think, it, I don't think it mattered. I think that, um, I mean, I, th 
you know, in some ways, and one reason why I think this story is taken on a life way beyond, you know, at that 3,000 miles beyond Lafayette is because it serves a bit like a micro uh, example of what's happening all over the place. And in, in this instance, there was a tremendous amount of disinformation uh, and false information uh, that was promoted about the development by the, by the anti-development groups. I mean, they, they went out and they sent mailers out to Lafayette residents saying that you can turn down this referendum and the developer will not have the ability to, to build the large apartment project. That was just uh, a lie. Um, but, you know, people got that uh, in their mailboxes and I, some, some number of them believed it and then voted, uh, voted to uh, vote in the anti-development group's favor as a result. So the disinformation campaign uh, definitely mattered. Um, O'Brien did hire a, a professional firm to manage his side of the campaign, but I don't know if they had uh, door knockers or not, but, you know, it's easy to second guess, but it, it lost by a landslide. So I, I kind of concluded that this was the voters will they, they weren't willing to accept really any development on that site. Um, I think one of the interesting things that's happening now is the recriminations. People are now, there's a whole group that are, or number of people that are angry at the anti-development group uh, for uh, misleading the public because they're now going to likely be um, facing a big project that they don't want to see in their backyard. Yeah, I think it was, it was easy uh, to lie to people. <laughs> and I think that the anti-development group actually they didn't think they were lying, you know, obviously, um, because I think it is really hard for people to believe that they aren't going to have local control. And I understand why, because for decades, it's been uh, like untouchable, you know, for decades. Like, I think they really were just like, there's just no way, you know, they're looking around their own neighborhood. They're like, we live in a certain type of place there's just no way there's going to be apartments here. And they really are thinking they're going to be able to like sequel it to death or politics it to death or something like that. I agree. I think a lot of their game is just a stall game where they just feel like we can just use tactic after tactic, lawsuit after lawsuit to just stall this thing out until the developer goes away. Um, and so far he hasn't done that. Uh, and if you get to know Dennis O'Brien, and I, I did because I had to work closely with him on this deal. I mean, this guy is a very serious, very principled uh, fellow. Um, Sonia, you and I got to sit in a, in a windowless conference room for a full day trying to negotiate a, negotiate a settlement. I think you got a sense for who he is. He's, he's a really good guy and a highly principled guy who cares deeply about what he does. And I don't think he's gonna, I just don't see him walking away ever. No, no, especially because it's actually a pretty good project. I mean, it really is an attractive place to live. I mean, it's right, you know, for people who aren't as familiar with the geography, it's between Walnut Creek and Oakland, you know, and then past Oakland is San Francisco. I mean, it's on the 24. It's just one continuous, um, like, economically bustling corridor. Um, and, and most of that corridor is very, very low density. I mean, especially considering the fact that it's right on a BART station, it's right on a highway. 
Uh, and, you know, Walnut Creek is like the downtown of the East Bay. I think a lot of people who are in San Francisco have no idea. But, you know, if San Francisco didn't exist, like Walnut Creek would be a much, I think, more famous and bigger sort of city in its own right. Um, it's at the intersection of a bunch of big highways. Uh, I want to ask you to talk about um, the wildlife, wild, sorry, wild life, wildland urban interface, whatever W stands for. Sorry, guys. Mm. Um, because, and high fire risk zones, because Lafayette actually, so not the place that this, this project would have been in, but other parts of Lafayette are genuinely in high fire risk zones. Mm. Um, you know, insurers have been dropping people or trying to. About a year ago in December, uh, Ricardo Lara, our state insurance commissioner, put a moratorium on um, insurers dropping people, but that moratorium is gonna end in December. And they're, I haven't heard anything, no plan at all from anyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll say right now, I think that the governor should show some leadership and start to develop a buyout you know, proposal. You know, So for people who, can't get insurance but don't want to lose their savings like we we need to have some kind of a voluntary buyout program um, to start depopulating because the wui it's actually a range of densities and you can go you know into a sufficiently low density range um, where you're no longer in this wildland urban interface or you can densify more and get out of it that way uh, anyway so yeah, talk to us about what your thoughts are because you have more experience. Well, I, that's, uh, not, that's, a, that's an issue that is pervasive throughout the Bay Area. We've got a lot of cities uh, in Copper Costa County, but particularly in Marin County that are um, these really lovely hamlets where the homes have been built up uh, and integrated into this system of open spaces. And now, climate change upon us, uh, these forests are drier than they've ever been before, and they're subject to drought and then uh, wildfire. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with your point, which I, the point I think you're making, which is that ultimately it, it may be the insurance crisis that's going to drive um, the change here. Um, because when people can't get fire insurance, it's going to just precipitate a whole different um, whole different conversation. I do have a question for you, Sonia. I, uh, I, I think I, I think you know I've been uh, supportive for housing and building more housing uh, in the Bay Area, but I'm also a big supporter of um, acquiring and uh, retaining open space, uh, particularly scenic corridors and so on and so forth, because I think that's just integral to the Bay Area into Californians' self-identity. And I know early on, uh, you had some, you made some statements that um, you thought maybe there was too much open space in the Bay Area and that all of that should be um, subject to a conversation about development so as to increase quantity and supply. But have you, as you're thinking on that changed over the years or how, how do you feel about that now? Uh, no, not really. Sometimes, sometimes it's, it's fun uh, to find out that I said something in the past, you know, that I'm like, wow, that's so smart. Still think it. Um, no, actually, 
So, the, uh, it's, so what you say about scenic corridors being integral to at least some um, Californian sense of self-identity is definitely true. Um, and it's definitely the psychological root of why there, you know, there are going to be very, very sensible seeming plans that are inexplicably difficult to do. And that's because, you know, people's self-image is so, so, so powerful, right? Like if you're changing something and someone feels like a part of them is like getting cut off, like it's really, really tough. Um, but actually the, uh, this, the, this wildfire stuff is, I think should motivate us even more to have compact development. And so this is actually kind of interesting. So a definition of compact is that you can, you know, if you have a compact space, like a circle or something, one of the definitions for it is that you can get from one part of it to another part of it without leaving the space. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, that is how we should be thinking about, you know, the Bay Area. Can you get the settled part of the Bay Area? Can you get from one part of it to another part of it without having to like pass through the woods? I mean, the woods are so dangerous now, you know, in a brand new way, like interspersing, you know, relatively dense human settlement um, with like, with tinder boxes. Why, why would we do that? So someplace like Lafayette, you know, how should Lafayette develop in the future? We have all of these people basically living in the woods and at the, um, you know, at the hearings for the, for the apartments, it came up all the time. You had people who were basically like legitimately terrified, you know, and possibly, you know, with some PTSD from previous fires saying to themselves, I might need to flee. I want to be able to get from my house to the highway quickly. And I don't want this. There was one woman in particular who said it right out. She said, I don't want those people to be in my way. And I think that's, you know, if you're living in the woods and it's terrifying for you and you think you might have to move, I think the right thing is for a woman, you know, that woman, that family should move closer to the highway. Like, why are people living in this dangerous area? And I think I mentioned this in my public comment, but we have been talking about these apartments as for, you know, outsiders, but it might turn out that it's actually for people who feel like it's not safe enough. You know, they, they won't be able to, to leave fast enough because they live on a winding road, they're low mobility, whatever, and that they need to get out of the woods. So I guess the upshot is, I think that we do need to preserve open space. So this is why I'm you know starting to think about like buyouts, the long range being, you know, just designating areas as like really too dangerous for people. Also, if we want to do controlled burns, we can't do controlled burns when people live in the woods. Mm -hmm. So we're, we might be having to like really bring people in from the foothills. And what that means is, you know, if you're driving from Fremont uh, East, all those beautiful hills, listen, buildings can be beautiful too, right? People, you know, Baghdad, <laughs> we used to call San Francisco Baghdad on the Bay, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a compliment. Like people still think that San Francisco is so beautiful because of the hills. And almost none of our hills are undeveloped. They're all developed and people still think it's beautiful. So I actually, there, yeah, there's going to be a generation that's like very upset that their hills suddenly, you know, aren't grass anymore, but like there'll be housing and then people think that's beautiful too. Mm -hmm. just get used right, to I'm going to jump in here because we've got some questions coming in and we're running out of time on this. Uh, terrific discussion and some very interesting ideas here that I think a lot of people hadn't uh, thought through. I have one question of my own before you get started here, and that is this project, particularly this one in Lafayette, sounded 
really good. It sounds like you added every possible Christmas package under the tree. Uh, it is in and of itself. It was something that seemed worthwhile. It was something that was needed. And yet it went down to defeat. What were the arguments that the NIMBY folks made that were so powerful in terms of turning this down? And how applicable is that to the argument you're seeing against other development in the state? So the main argument that I think uh, was um, uh, uh, persuasive to people was that this project is located at uh, uh, an intersection uh, of Pleasant Hill Road and Deer Hill Road. And that intersection is extremely impacted already by traffic. And during the, the peak hour commute right now, the typical um, this is prior to COVID, uh, the typical uh, commuter would have to sit through three cycles of the red signal uh, to get through this intersection every afternoon. And so anybody who drives through that intersection um, would think that building a big 700 or 300 unit apartment building uh, next to it uh, is um, not a good thing. That I mean, I think that is the argument that was the most persuasive argument for, for Lafayette residents. And, and I, you know, I, I think, you know, if you, if you go, if you look at what is happening all over the state and all over the country, or at least the state, uh, traffic is just one of many sequel arguments that will be made. And it was made, you know, very um, effectively in this instance. So Great. is that your impression as well? Traffic is the number yeah. one thing. Yeah. yeah. Always. Well, let me bring up a couple of other arguments that people are weighing in with here and just see, uh, not necessarily relatable to, to Lafayette, but to building housing in general. Uh, for example, uh, Terry on YouTube uh, brings up the question of gentrification and how much this would contribute to gentrification and forcing low-income people out of their homes. And I guess similar to that, uh, Rebecca from Facebook wants to know about, you know, whether this is simply going to be a result in the rich sweeping up all the homes and throwing the poor to the streets. So is, is this just about, you know, tearing down affordable housing and building uh, market rate uh, luxury apartments that, uh, that don't help anybody? I'm glad you asked because so this is one of the reasons why it's so urgent to build housing like this in Lafayette. So Lafayette, if you look it up, Lafayette, California, it's basically a white flight suburb. Um, it's it's like more than 80 percent white in a region that is, you know, less than 50 percent white, probably like it's actually shocking how heter uh, homogeneous it is. Um, and they incorporated in the 70s to maintain control, you know, over uh, development and to and to continue to be basically like a large lot single family home area. And there are places like this all over California and that is ultimately where gentrification starts. You know, we have desirable places um, with good schools, access to opportunity, convenient to jobs, and they make rules like you can only have one house per 5,000 square feet. I mean, 5,000 square feet is a tremendous amount of uh, space. Um, and so this, you know, drives like middle income people to start living in neighborhoods that used to be affordable to low income people. That's what I was talking about at the beginning, right? I was living in West Oakland and it was a cheap place considering how close it is to the central business district of like one of the most productive cities in the world. Um, 
And uh, it was, you know, we were being priced out by, by higher income people who couldn't live in San Francisco. So to fight gentrification, we have to build intensely in the places that aren't gentrified. So look around your region, find the wealthiest places that are already expensive. And we have to go ham building in those places, apartments, all kinds of stuff um, so that you know, like demand, it's, you, you could just push it around. It's like toothpaste in the toothpaste tube. You know what I mean? If people want to live in your region because there are jobs, they'll find a way. And so if we want to keep high income people from gentrifying affordable areas, then we have to make sure that in the most desirable places, we're building tons of housing. And I'll just follow on and say, if you haven't read um, uh, this book, this relatively new book, uh, that's out called The Color of Law, and you're interested in this issue, then uh, I commend it to you. Uh, what it says, in fact, I would argue what it proves is that uh, government agencies at all levels, uh, state and uh, local and federal, have used their powers to segregate our society. Uh, and it, this is called de jure segregation. And so Sonia's right. When you venture into a community that is almost all white, uh, that was probably done uh, deliberately. And uh, if, that, if that community has better schools than all of the towns surrounding it, then that is an instance of discrimination uh, that was sanctioned, uh, in, in fact, designed and planned by the government. Now, uh, uh, there's a thinker out uh, among us named Ibram Kendi, and he, he writes about uh, what to do in such an instance. And he says that uh, it's not enough to be not racist, uh, that you need to be anti-racist. And being anti-racist means that you need to actually work uh, to change those things that you see around you that are racist. And that if you benefit from a system that is racist um, and are not actively working against it, then you are complicit in that racism. Um, and I think all of us need to look at ourselves and the places that we live and the systems that we benefit from. And if we conclude that we are getting an unfair advantage uh, because of our history or our skin color or for whatever reason, if we're not actively working against that, then you know we need to figure out how we're going to live with ourselves. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's really an important point, and how we, whether or not we take advantage of these restrictions for our own benefit, says something about us. Uh, what about SB thirty five? Would that have had a significant uh, impact on the Lafayette project? It's a question mm. for Brandon. I, it might have. I'm not sure, actually. Um, would I guess the question is, would it have been feasible in 2011 to have that project be half um, set aside below market rate at so, SB 35 rates? Do you know? So, Sonia, re refresh my memory. Was SB 35 the, the bill that would have required certain density within a half mile of the transit station or was that oh, does it only work within a certain i don't think so geez i don't know 
Somebody, if somebody can tell us in the chat. So SB 35, it's basically the it's ministerial approval um, if you do 50% affordable and in some places 10%, but I think Lafayette would have been a 50% place. So I don't think it matters whether it was close to the uh, train station. I think it would have just been, would they have been able to do a 50% um, afford? And I think affordable in this case is 80% AMI. And so they might have been able to because the AMI is like pretty high out there. Mm -hmm. And initially, you know, I think in the 2011 version, um, O'Brien offered to deed restrict the, the, the whole thing for median income. So if they were in a position where they could have deed restricted for the whole thing for between 80 and 120, maybe they could have deed restricted half of it for 80% AMI. I don't know. I'm sorry. Sort of unsatisfying. The answer is maybe, and only O'Brien would be able to tell us. <laughs> but it, it all depends on what the economics of the project was. If the economics were like, yeah, 50% at 80% AMI, like that works for us, then yeah, SB 35 would have been a big deal because it would have been a ministerial process and like there would have been no public input. All right. Uh, I think we're going to call it a day here. We'll come right to the end of our, uh, of our time. Uh, I'm going to suggest that uh, folks come back again tomorrow. We start at 10 a.m. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit more focused tomorrow on homelessness, but we won't neglect the housing issue, I promise. So if you come back tomorrow at 10 a.m., we can tune in again. I want to take the time to thank all of our speakers. Thank you, Stephen and Sonia, but all of our speakers today. I think we've had some very lively discussions. I know that uh, my inbox has been full of questions. Uh, I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them. Uh, but we will certainly try to get to more tomorrow and have a chance for you to talk to, to our speakers as, on these issues. Uh, I also want to thank all the people at Cato who helped make this project possible. That's uh, a very generous contribution from uh, Dave Steffi and the Orange County Community Foundation, but also all the people who work at, in our IT department who helped this actually a Zoom conference that seemed to go off uh, fairly smoothly, so uh, we appreciate that our media department and our, uh, you know, and all the folks who worked on it, particularly my two assistants, Dave Hervey and Kelly Lester. Uh, without them, this would not have been possible. So I certainly thank them. Uh, McKenzie and all the folks in the conference staff who put all this together. I really appreciate it. And most of all, appreciate all of you for coming today. We had uh, over 570 people registered. I think we're gonna be over 600 people attending this conference. Uh, from uh, government officials to housing advocates to students all, all across the state. We really appreciate it. So please join us tomorrow at 10 a.m. for the day two of crisis housing and homelessness in California. Thank you all very much.